Revelation. We'll take up the Word of God again this evening, and we are verse by verse uh, going through the book of Revelation, trying to not delve down real, real super-duper deep, but uh, these texts, I came up today and I told my wife, I said, boy, our text, it just takes you down. It just absolutely takes you down deep into the workings of God, and it's such a glorious thing to see what the Lord is doing and what He's going to do, and so that's the exciting part about being able to have our Bibles in our hands and to read from the book of Revelation, that which is, uh, well, the word means to reveal, amen, so it's going to be revealing some things to us this evening as well. Now, we're, uh, if you will, let's turn together, Revelation chapter 12, look at verses 4, 5, and 6, we'll read that together this evening, and this is indeed and are the very words of God himself. And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them down to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Verse 5, And she, the woman, brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a a place prepared of God, that they should uh, feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Well, again, as we have been delving into the book of Revelation, it is a most interesting portion of Scripture to us this evening, very descriptive. And uh, as we remember from verse number three, the great dragon has appeared on the scene, and we, did, we uh, from Scripture, saw that it is indeed Satan himself. And the picture here of the dragon's tail, that John, as he's led by the Spirit of God, that word drawing, drawing away a third part of the stars to the earth, is a reference to Satan's original fall. And it's interesting, again, as we've looked at this text, that indeed we see uh, Israel's history. I mean, this is what's happening. A, A reader's, if you will, digest, inspired, condensed version of some of Israel's history and history in general. And so, again, John here is referring to Satan's original fall as he corrupted along with himself a host of ever of of other heavenly beings which occurred as we remember brethren early on uh, early on in in God's created order prior to the temptation of Eve in the garden now that word drew there draws our attention it literally means to drag it's a familiar word we get from John the the gospel of John we're familiar with that Uh, to drag to pull to draw in the catching of fish to move someone or something uh, along by force. In other words, what we're seeing here in our text is that Satan did indeed uh, have a powerful influence over the stars. And we looked, remember, brother, there's some language here that's descriptive, there's some language that's literal, but we looked and saw that the stars that the text is speaking of is indeed angels. And so we've looked at that. The stars, the angels who followed the dragon in his rejection of God, He was indeed key to their rebellion. He was a leader in their rebellion against God. And sometimes it's interesting to sit and consider some things. Amen. Think of being perfect, as we're going to see here, as God describes Satan. Look with me, would though, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 14, a very familiar portion of Scripture. Again, this is what John, part of what John is referencing to here in our Scripture tonight. Look at Isaiah chapter 14, beginning there in verse number 12. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. In fact, earlier on, we, in 9, 10, and 11 in our text, uh, or in this particular portion of Isaiah, he's speaking of the judgment of Antichrist. And so he gets to verse number 12, and he says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, 
son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend again. We notice the eyes. I mean, again, it's an amazing, stunning thing. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation the sides of the north. I will ascend up above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. And this is what you see again here. And then this is the original, if you will, reference that John is referencing, the original fall of Satan himself when he rebelled against God. In fact, look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel gives us a glorious picture. Again, these are things that took place before Eve was tempted by the tempter in the garden. He was there before Eve was there. In fact, if you look here very quickly, look at Ezekiel, if you would, chapter 28, again, with very familiar portions of Scripture to us, but we're going to see here again the original fall, and this is how God describes through the type of the king of Tyre what Satan was, Lucifer was like before he became Satan. In fact, the word Lucifer means light bearer. It's an amazing thing as uh, we see in Scripture, this glorious description. What's the matter? Is my mic not on? Hello. Can you hear me now? Oh, my goodness. Good, good thing that you fixed it, Isaac. All right. You guys won't know where to turn, amen? Look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Do I, should I just start over? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Look at Ezekiel chapter 28. We all understand what a type is, a picture. It's a shadow of something besides itself. And we see here in Ezekiel chapter 28 as God leads Ezekiel to write concerning this amazing thing. Look at Ezekiel 28. Look at verse number 2. Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, thus saith the Lord God, behold, because thine heart is lifted up and has said that I am a God. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas, and yet thou art a man, not God. Thou shalt uh, thou set thine heart as the heart of God. And so we, again, we see here this description that God is going to give us, or Ezekiel is going to give us under the inspiration of God, concerning the fall, concerning the description of Lucifer before he led this rebellion in the heavens against our holy God. Look at verse number 12 there, if you would. Look what he does now. He goes in and gives us a descriptive, a type of uh, Satan himself. Verse number 12, Son of man... Take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Just think, imagine that now. This is the kind of creature that he was, created by God. Uh, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. And so again, we see here that before Eve ever got there, he was there. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, tobaz, and the uh, diamond, the beryl, the onyx. The jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carcubine, the gold and gold, the workmanship of the tabrets and the pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Look at verse 14. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. Again, this is a direct uh, reference to what took place when Satan himself rebelled and brought a, a slew of them, as John is saying, this tale drawing a slew of the heavenly hosts with them and casting them down to the earth. Now, our text, again, is also referencing 
another thing, the war that takes place in the middle of the tribulation. And again, contextually, when you look in the text, we see that. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Again, we see, again, it's referencing the original fall because what comes next is really the war, the battle that took place over the eons of history of time. But here, again, we see this in Revelation chapter 12. Look at what happens here. This war also that's being referenced, these dual prophecies and these dual workings of God are always, to me, an amazing thing in Scripture. Look there at Revelation chapter 12, look at verse number 7, which, Lord willing, we will get to next week. The Bible says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. There again, there's the reference, those who have been swept down, those who have fallen him in their rejection of God. Uh, we see that. Verse 8, And prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So again, we see this idea here of this great war, this great battle that's going to take place, although he's referencing the battle that has been taking place between our divine, holy, sovereign God and his unequal, Satan himself. And again, that's why he references the next portion of the verse. Again, there's this war, this promise, this battle that's taking place, and uh, we're going to look at that together um, this evening. Look there now back at Revelation chapter 12, look at verse number 4, and we again, we see the reaction. This, if you will, this battle, this war that's taking place between sovereign God and his unequal. And I say that all the time. Satan thought he was going to be God. He was going to take the place of God. He was going to sit in the seat of God. And no one, brethren, can do that. He is definitely God's unequal. He is inferior to the Lord our God, obviously. But look there, if you would, at verse number 4 again, as we see that, the second portion of that. And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, the Bible says, which is ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Again, John, in his glorious way of picturing, as God has led him by the Spirit of God to picture, if you will, Satan standing before this woman. And you guys remember now, this woman is Israel, okay? It's interesting, again, we looked at this last week. People think that, that this woman is the church. Brethren, the church did not birth Christ. Christ birthed the church. It's not that way. It's the other way around. This is Israel. This is the nation of Israel that we've looked at before. So this woman that is being pictured, is, is uh, and, and, and she's waiting to give birth to the child, which, of course, we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is Satan pictured standing there with his insatiable and his unholy, even today, his intentions to destroy the seed of the woman as soon as he is born. This is a potent portion of Scripture, brethren, uh, that looks at the birth of Christ from the perspective, as I said earlier, as an ongoing divine war between our sovereign God, who is holy and he who inhabits eternity, he who is righteous and good always, between him and his unequal, his inferior, his rebellious, if you will, and proud adversary, Satan, it is an inspired reference to that which God had spoken in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is what we see. Again, we see this whole thing just taking place in a very short portion of Scripture. There's a lot of history that's being, that's, that's being referenced here in a very short portion of Scripture. 
This is indeed that, uh, that uh, uh, if war, if you will, concerning the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which has indeed been borne out. And this is interesting as you study Scripture in this glorious prophecy that God himself said would happen between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's certainly been borne out in the lengthy pattern of history in Satan as he is battling against the people of God and God himself. And we see this as he has been attempting to destroy God's royal line, the royal lineage. See, we as Americans can't begin to understand what that means. But in the Old Testament, as Christ was being prophesied, as he was being brought forth by the nation of Israel, the lineage from which he was to come was a very important thing. And this is a thing that Satan continually tried to destroy. If you destroy the lineage... You don't have the perfect Son of God. If you destroy the lineage, that plan of salvation, if you will, that the Lord God is bringing forth, could not take place. He tried to destroy the royal line from Adam to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, in whose lineage springs forth, brethren, as we all know, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Do this sometime if you have time. It takes some study But do some study sometimes. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 on, you will begin to see. I I call it the old, uh, if you will, the funnel theology. Because from that prophecy on, you again see Satan warring against that lineage. And that lineage continually, you can follow it just like a scarlet thread all down through the pages of Scripture. The tribe of Judah, the tribe of Judah, that's who he is attacking. It's an amazing thing to watch. And in fact, we know the promise that God made in Genesis chapter 49. And uh, we, uh, he said there that, that the tribe, the scepter of Judah will never end, the, or the, the scepter will never depart from Judah. That's because that's the tribe, the lineage, the royal line, that the seed that we're talking about tonight, that, the, that, that he's standing there waiting to devour, is speaking of, is speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to look at this, just again, a couple of examples Sometimes we don't think about how cunning he really was as he's trying to devour the seed, as he's trying to destroy the lineage, the royal lineage of Christ. Well, he tried it here in Genesis chapter 4. Look there if you would. Just a couple of examples. There are many. But I want you to see how specific this really is, how he uh, understood that that promise that God made concerning, you know, You're going to bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. He understood what that was, the promise to bring forth the Messiah through the line of the tribe of Judah. So therefore is his focus. This is what he's trying to do. Look what he first does in Genesis chapter 4, to try and destroy, to try and devour the seed, if you will, that's coming forth that God promised in Genesis chapter 3. Look at Genesis chapter 4. Look at verse number 8. Again, text and sometimes we read things and don't really even think about what Satan is doing. But Satan uses his own son here to try and do away with the lineage early on, almost immediately. Look at verse number 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and what? And slew him. Now, it's interesting here, again, we see Satan using Cain to try and interrupt the line that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come through. But, of course, we all know that sovereign God, as Satan is trying, do you remember who came next? We had Abel was killed, and then who was his place? Who took his place? Seth. 
The word Seth, Seth literally means substitute. And so what we have here, again, we have Satan doing this and God bringing forth Seth, the substitute, where the line and the lineage will follow on down through the tribe of Judah, which is really quite an amazing thing. He tried it in Genesis chapter 6, too. Look at Genesis chapter 6. Again, this is just a constant war and a battle that he has been trying to pollute and tried to pollute right up until, brethren, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen? That's when it all ceased. That's when that prophecy was fulfilled. When, Satan ro- or when Christ rose from the dead, he crushed Satan under his feet by the resurrection of the dead. Look there, if you would, Genesis chapter 6. Look at the polluting of the offspring that takes place. Again, this is the central focus. This is what he's trying to do. This is exactly what... John is speaking of concerning this seed. He's waiting, standing there before Israel to devour the seed that she is about to bring forth, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look there, if you would, at chapter chapter 6. Look at verse number 2. The diluting down of the lineages. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, that they took to them wives of which they chose. And again, you look at what they're doing here, and there's, it's deep right here. Uh, these, these marriages were completely unholy for several reasons. Number one, going outside of the lineage, but they followed the choice of their own corrupt affections, which made this thing completely unholy, which was then drawing them away from those, the, the lineage that God is using. And the Bible says there in verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall always strive with men, for he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, that they bear children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, were of old men of renown. And so again, we see again here a trying to pollute the lineage, it goes on and on. Sometimes we read, look at one more, well, at least one more anyway. We'll look at a couple of them. Look at Exodus chapter 1. Look at here how Satan attempts through, if you will, Pharaoh to kill all of the male Hebrews. And you'll notice again, brethren, every single time Satan rears his ugly head concerning the lineage of Christ, you know who he's not concerned about at all? Ladies, I'm not trying to be unkind, but there's not one time where Satan is worried about your lineage. He's worried about the males. He's worried about where Jesus Christ is coming from. It's the same here with Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't care about the ladies. You know who he cared about, who he wanted to kill to extinguish the lineage? Was the males. It's an amazing thing, brother. Look there, if you would, Exodus chapter 1. Look at verse number 16. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture. Again, this is what John is writing about. This, he who has come to devour the male child, the seed of God. Look at verse number 16. Look there what the Bible says. And he, Pharaoh, said, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and and see them upon the stools, and if it be a, what, a daughter, no, if it be a son, See, it's the male. That's what he's concerned about. He doesn't care about, not that, well, he likes your soul too, but at this point in the history of Scripture, he's looking to devour the lineage of Christ. Hebrew women, see it sit upon the stools. If it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. Again, we see this focus, if you will, of this battle, this war. Look at verse 22 
of, uh, of that same portion of Scripture, chapter 1. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every female, every daughter, no, every son that is born, ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. And again, this is the funnel. This is what we're seeing. This tribe of Judah that's going to come forth to bring forth the seed. This is who Satan hates. This is who he is trying to devour. He also attempted it through Athaliah. And we're going to look at that quickly. Look at Second Chronicles 22. Again, just a couple of them. He's, he's sneaky little devil, isn't he? He's a sneaky little devil. And this is what Satan did. He tried through... Athaliah to destroy the royal heirs of Judah. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 22. Again, just a couple of them here, and then we'll carry on. Second Chronicles chapter 22. I got to get there. My pages are stuck together again. Second Chronicles 22, and again we see the glorious, victorious God in his in his war in his battle. Look at verse number two. Forty and two years was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, Athaliah, the daughter or granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly, Wherefore he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. Look at verse 10. Again, this is what we see here now. The king dies, and his mother's in charge, and what does she do? The Bible says here, but when Alethea, the mother of Ahaziah, that's easy for me to say, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal of the house of who? Judah. There it is. That, again, is Satan attempting to go through this wicked woman to do away with the royal seed of the tribe of Judah. Again, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ha ha. However, though, brethren, this is why I love studying this out, because I don't know. I get goosebumps. I don't know about you guys, but you see God, sovereign God, powerful, mighty, moving and saving and directing and sovereignly directing the lineage that will come through the tribe of Judah. Do you remember how he saved the tribe of Judah here in this particular situation? You may not remember that because I forgot about it until I studied it out again. He saved one baby. There was one baby that was saved. Anybody remember what his name was? Joash, I think Bev just said it. Joash, and I want you to see this. Again, here we have this wicked woman trying to destroy the royal heir of Israel. And God himself says, I'm going to send another woman who's going to sneak away this one child who is from the tribe of Judah who will continue that lineage. It's just amazing to see how God does this. Look at 2 Kings real quickly, chapter 11. God's saving of his royal line, his royal heirs. The lineage which which the Messiah must come through. Look at Second Kings chapter eleven. Again, a a uh, a a recount, but something's added here. And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. Do you see that there? All of it. She's trying to get rid of the seed of Judah. 
That's what we just read in, in Second Chronicles. Look what it says. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter king of Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain. And they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Alathiah, so that he was not slain. And he was with her, hid in the house of the Lord six years, and Ahaziah did reign over the land. Here we again see the Lord God himself instructing this young woman to go and take this child, Joash, to continue and to protect the lineage and the lineage of God from which who Judah, which who Christ would come. Again, this has been an, a battle that has gone on and on and on. It's a stunning thing, brother, to see. In fact, look at one more just again because this is kind of fun. Look at Esther uh, chapter 3. Again, a very familiar portion of, of, of Scripture to us as well. But again, we see Satan as he attempts through Haman to destroy the Jews. It's always been the Satan's uh, uh, arch nemesis is this lineage, this promise that God made to him, and he has an insatiable desire and appetite to destroy the seed of God. It is stunning, brethren, to see this. Look at Esther chapter 3. Look at verse number 4. Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's uh, matters would stand, for he had told him that he was a Jew. There it is again, the hatred of the Jews. Amazing thing. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. There it is again. And what happened, brethren? This is something I always say to everybody as we talk and discuss the current policies. You know, if you want something practical to think and pray about, the current God-hating, Christ-hating policies that are being implemented, amen? This is a glorious story, a narrative, if you will, of a man who is trying to destroy the Jews, who builds a glorious what? Remember, he was going to hang Mordecai high from the gallows. And he said, make them high, hang them high, that old, that old story, right? And in the end, who gets hung high on, the, on his own gallows? None other but Haman himself. There's God again. You're going to destroy my lineage? No, you're not. I'm going to destroy you and hang you from the highest gallows. It's just a stunning. I just, I get so, you know what it does? It excites me because I know that God, he loves his people. And during the church age, that's us. Those to whom he died for, his, his children. He loves us and will protect us and will care for us throughout all of eternity. It's an amazing thing to see and to understand how glorious and how powerful and how mighty God is when it comes to concerning his children. It's stunning to behold. It's stunning to watch. In fact, one more time. It's only 8 o'clock. One more time. One more last-ditch effort. Satan attempted, as we know, to use King Herod to again destroy the lineage. And I want you to see this. It's all about the male. It's all about the boys. It's all about them. Because he knows that this is where it's coming from. Look at Matthew chapter 2. And again, just a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. But sometimes, again, we read over it and we don't realize what's happening. 
what he is, what's actually taking place. It isn't just he's trying to kill a king, which he is, but it's much more than that, brethren. He's trying to kill a lineage. He's trying to kill a seed, and Satan is using him to try and do so. Look there at Matthew chapter 2, look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding, <coughs> was, uh, was, uh, exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were born in Bethlehem, and in all the coast thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled, which was spoken by Jeremiah, Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel. <laughs> well, there you go, there's your clue. Weeping for all her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. And remember, brethren, it wasn't the two-year-old girls he was concerned about. Who did he kill? He was concerned about the two-year-old boys. That's who he's concerned about. Again, throughout all of Israel's history, it's an amazing thing. And, and really, time in history, the serpent has stood before them, waiting and trying to devour the seed of Christ. Here, it's just simply Christ himself that's being typed and pictured. Now, what time did we start? Um, it's 8 o'clock already. Let's read verses 5 and 6 of Revelation chapter 12. We'll see how far we get. This is really, really interesting. It really, really is. So we see this war, this battle that's taking place, and we see Satan standing there trying to devour the seed. But again, we see God's glorious protection. We see God's glorious uh, protection over his children, over the nation of Israel, even here during the time of the Great Tribulation. Look there at verses 5 and 6. And she, Israel, again, brothers and sisters, the she cannot be the church because the church did not birth Christ. The nation of Israel did. Don't get that. Again, I just read something this week again. Some, you know, this, some, this crazy stuff out there that's out there. Just amazing. No, you people are crazy. It's the church. It can't be the church because the church did not birth Christ. Christ birthed the church. Although Israel birthed Christ. <laughs> you, see how that, you see how that works? That's, that's the order. That's God's order of things. It really is. Look there again, verse number 5. And she, Israel, brought forth a man-child, Christ, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. In verse 6, brethren, there is a long expanse of history between verses 5 and 6. Verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God. That's very important. That's very similar language that's used in John chapter 14 when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we'll look at that next week. I just want to read this portion of scripture. Where she hath prepared a place, uh, a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days. Wow. Here... In this text, brethren, we have a most amazing characteristic of many prophetic Bible passages. We have events that are side by side in our text, but are separated by long ages of time. It's an amazing thing. If you understand this from Israel's perspective, from God's doing, there is a huge expanse of time between verse 5 and verse number 6. It's a stunning thing when you get a hold of that. The child in verse 5, 
Brethren, it's Wednesday evening. Can I just ask this? The child in verse 5 is Christ. When did Christ ascend? <laughs> How long ago did Christ ascend? Well, roughly what? 1,900 years ago. Roughly, amen? About 1,900 years ago, amen? While verse 5 is about Christ, verse 6 is about Israel, and Israel has not fled yet. There's a huge expanse of time between verses 5 and 6. In fact, this is a glorious thing in Scripture. We see this all the time, where one prophecy or two events will be in the same text, but there's hundreds, sometimes thousands of years between them, which is quite amazing when you, when you look at that. Let's look at a couple of them. The woman Israel, let me just say this, in verse 6, has not yet fled unto God and unto his loving care that we read in that text in verse 6. Israel has not done that yet. Not yet. Christ ascended 1,900 years ago, but Israel hasn't ran to God yet. But I'm convinced that they will. Let me show you here two events in the same text that are years and years and years apart. It has to do with Christ's first and second advent. It has to do, brethren, as we're going to look tonight, it's 10 after, we may have to just kind of slow down and stop here, because I, I really want to focus on this for a moment. There's two things in Scripture that are, that are apropos to our text. Two things. Number one, where there's a long expanse period of time. Number one is His first coming and His second coming. And number two is the first resurrection and the second resurrection. <laughs> In fact, the first resurrection and the second resurrection we see from the book of Revelation is thousands, at least a thousand years apart. So in the same text, we see two events, but they're thousand years apart. It's really quite an amazing thing. Let me show you Isaiah chapter 61. Here's, here's one of them. Let's just look here. Isaiah chapter 61, if you turn there with me. And then we'll, we'll finish this up and we'll pick this up again, Lord willing, next week. Because it really is one of those texts that just makes you stand up uh, as you're studying it out, like I did this week. And it makes you wander up the stairs and wander up another set of stairs in your house and your wife is sitting at the table and you just look at her and go, this stuff is amazing and it's deep. I'm trying to, hurt, I'm, I'm trying to get through the book of Revelation, but I keep it, it, things just get deeper and deeper. And I want us to understand this because it's really, really... Important. Look at Isaiah chapter 61. Many of us will remember that the Lord Jesus Christ quotes Isaiah 61 and half of verse number 2 in Luke chapter 4. We remember that. But I want you to see here two advents that at this point, brethren, how long has it been? Well, about 1900 years since he ascended. He has not come back. His first, when he first appeared on the earth, it's actually almost 2000 years now which is what verse 1 and part of verse 2 is all about. It's about his first advent. Look there, if you would, at verse number 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Remember, he quoted this in Luke. Because the Lord God hath anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Look at verse 2. Now, if you were in Luke chapter 4, you would see that Jesus stops, and I'll tell you when he stops, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, stop. 
That's where he stops quoting in Luke chapter 4. You know why? Because he's quoting about himself in his first advent. I'm here, and the reason I'm here is because I'm here to preach the gospel in my first advent. Amen. I'm here to heal up the brokenhearted. I'm here to proclaim the day of liberty. That's why I'm here. And then he just simply stops in the middle of verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 61. Why? Because it's all about his first advent. Now, as you continue verse number 2, the last half of it, guess what? There's an expanse. In the rest of that verse, that's well over almost 2,000 years now. Amazingly, look at, look at the rest of verse 2. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. The first half of verse 2, he's proclaiming the gospel. The second half of verse 2, he's speaking about Jesus coming in judgment and establishing his millennial kingdom where he will reign, as we have read in the text earlier in Revelation, that he is there to rule with a rod of iron. That's when he's going to come and do it. He's going to come and do it. But brethren, at this present time, as we're all waiting, it's near 2,000 years, and there's a 2,000-year gap in one verse. It's amazing. It is the same scenario in Revelation. Jesus Christ in verse 5, the nation of Israel who has not fled to God yet in verse 6. They will. <laughs> it's an amazing thing to behold. I almost said something about Millie. She's praying for my singing. She, she got to stand in front of me when I sang tonight. It's a little, little freaky, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm in flat F, and I think it was G you guys were in or something. It's amazing. This is such an amazing thing to me, brethren. Again, this whole idea of the way God does it. It's a stunning thing. Let me just close. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Another area where you have two events in the same verses that are at least a thousand years apart. Revelation chapter 20. Look at verses 4 and 5. Look there if you would. This, of course, is dealing with the first resurrection. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. What, is we, what are we describing here? Men who have been saved by God during the tribulation, who are faithful to him, and who refuse to bow down to the evil one himself, the beast. These are faithful men who have been saved by God during the tribulation, or faithful people who have been saved by God, who have refused to give their loyalty and their obeisance to the beast. They're raised. Look what the Bible says here. In their hands, or in their hands. They lived and reigned with Christ how long? A thousand years. These faithful men, these faithful people during the tribulation, who were killed during the tribulation, are raised to life. A thousand years. Look at verse 5. But the rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years, what? Were finished. This is the first resurrection. You see what he's saying there. There's an expanse in the same text, which is just an amazing, stunning thing for me to behold as you study this out. Again, our text in Revelation is, is pointing and centered on the nation of Israel. Let me close with this quote. As one pastor said, when the woman flees into the wilderness, we meet yet another and yet more lengthened parentheses 
between the ascension of the man-child and the woman's flight, yet future, the history of Christianity comes in, the church age. You notice there that the church age isn't mentioned. It's an amazing thing, and yet it's there. That's what I'm talking about. This is what's not mentioned in that text. This is what's going on right now. The time of the Gentiles isn't even mentioned. It jumps right from his ascension. He goes up into, into heaven. It's an amazing thing. Look what he says as he continues. Between the ascension of the man-child and the woman's flight yet future, the history of Christianity comes in, the church age, the time of the Gentiles, a time distinct from Israel. Again, brethren, he says the great point to lay hold of in our text is the connection between Christ and Israel, not Christ and the church at this point. Hence, the two omitted parenthetical periods. Number one, between the birth and ascension, between the ascension and the flight. That's not mentioned. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, brethren, when you see that? In fact, John's vision recognizes Jesus' ascension and then takes up Israel's narrative as though the church age has never, was not, uh, did not intervene, which we know that it did. And brethren, it is in perfect harmony. Again, as we close and conclude, it is in perfect harmony with Daniel chapter 26, which doesn't mention the church age either. It's a stunning thing, the purity of Scripture and how it all is neatly tied together as God is working through his glorious, perfect plan. And we'll take up verse number six. We will finish that up. A place repaired of God for three and a half years. What is that for 1,265 days? What does that mean? 42 months, what is that? What portion of time in history is that? The woman flees there to a place of refuge for the last half, I believe, of the tribulation period, the 1,265 days, or 1,260 days, three and a half years. And as we'll look next week, we do not know who they are who feeds them, because our text says that they will feed them. But there's a divine protection of God's very own hand. It may be nations who are friendly. It may be something supernatural that God does, which I tend to lean towards, because God is a supernatural God to watch over his people during this glorious time of the tribulation when this judgment is taking place. All right, well, let's pray. <laughs> we better stop there. We'll pray together this evening. Fathers, we consider the scriptures tonight. We are so thankful that you have made very clear the arch enemy of our souls is the arch enemy and was the arch enemy of Israel and of the seed that you promised to bring forth through the tribe of Judah. Thank you for showing us just in a few verses, and there are many others, of his cunning and crafty ways how he tried to pollute the lineage, how he tried to destroy the lineage, the males, knowing that, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, the eternal Son of God, would come and be incarnate. He would put on flesh and live as a perfect, holy, righteous man who then would be offered up by you 
that you in your priestly role would offer up the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that you provided. A male without blemish, no broken bones, perfect, that he would shed his blood, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, which then shed his lifeblood for his people, that he would go to the grave and that he would indeed be there three days and three nights, and that early on the first day of the week, when those who loved him went to the grave, there's women, (laughs) those women showed up. We remember those glorious words of the angel to Mary. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, just as he said. Father, we rejoice tonight. We thank you for that. We thank you that you did indeed send the Savior into the world. He accomplished that for which You sent him. He was perfect and obedient in everything. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And now, as he was ascended into heaven some 1,900 years ago, the Holy Spirit of God is his vicar. He took the place. It's not some pope or some man anywhere. It is the Spirit of God who who takes the Word of God and he applies it and he convicts the world of sin. He does all of these things that a man or a woman or child might be regenerated, might have their eyes open, their heart changed from stone to flesh, ears unstopped, that they might hear and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved. Father, we thank you again for your glorious purposes. We thank you for your word. It is so holy It is so right and pure and perfect and good, just as you are. We thank you for that. Thank you for the lessons we've seen tonight in what would seem to be an obscure verse, which it is not by any stretch of the imagination, an obscure verse to some concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you and love you for putting it there that we might see it and understand it. We ask and pray all these things again in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.